Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul, one of the servants here at New Life Press, and I have the wonderful privilege and honor of delivering to you God's word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if I could kindly ask to open to the book of James, and we are continuing on our series of the book of James titled Living Faith, and we are almost already past, way, past the halfway mark of this letter. So if I could ask for all of us to stand for the reading of God's word as an act of worship, and you can follow along in the screens behind me. But this is God's most holy and perfect word for all of us here this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And let's turn to our Father one more time in prayer at this time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, this much-needed word for such sinful, selfish, idolatrous people like us. And Lord, many of us come with much conflict and fights and quarrels in our lives, with unrest in our hearts. So we ask this morning, by your word, would you remind us and teach us the overflow abundance of your grace in the gospel of your son. So convict us where it hurts, but also give us comfort that this world cannot offer us. We pray all of this in the precious name of our son, of your son in Jesus Christ. Amen. Conflicts, friends, are part of your everyday life, aren't they? Maybe it's the conflicts that you had in your homes right before you came to church this morning. Or it's the conflict that you had with your friends or your coworkers or whoever and it's been bothering you all week, or even just all day today. Or it's the conflict you have with someone right here in this church, maybe two, three, or four rows down, and it's been brewing up, it's been so uncomfortable and awkward between you two. And you know, as we've seen through the letter of James in the sins of partiality, but also in the sins of failing to tame our tongues, we see that conflicts are just so natural to sinful people like all of us here, that when any two people come together, It's just ripe for a conflict. And so what James does in our passage that we just read is that he takes us deeper into the problems or the cause for the conflicts, the quarrels, the fights in our lives. And then he gives us a solution at the end that we'll see on our last point. But three simple points for us to dive into this morning in our passage. First, we look at problem number one, our desires. Second, we look at problem number two, our friendship with the world. And last but not least, the solution 
what is the solution that James gives to the quarrels and the fights, the conflicts of our lives? So again, problem number one, our desires. Problem number two, our friendship with the world. And last but not least, the solution we find in the gospel of Christ. So first, our desires. You know, James begins in verse one with a question, right? He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Right? In other words, why do you fight? Why are you fighting? Well, sisters and brothers of New Life, if I were to ask you today why you keep fighting with your spouse or why you keep getting into arguments with your children, your parents, your in-laws, your friends, and even people in this church, what is often your honest answer? They are. Right? Only if my spouse was a bit more caring. Right? Only if my friend, my parents was a bit more understanding, only if my boss wasn't so demanding, only if that church member was a bit more considerate to my needs, there would be no conflict. You see, the first thing you and I do when there's a conflict is point our finger to everyone else but you. But here in our passage, in verses 1 to 3, James is teaching us to point that finger to ourselves, more specifically to the desires of the heart. Or he says in verse 1, is it not this, right? Isn't this the problem, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, ultimately, James is saying the conflicts among us, whether in our homes, in our relationships, school, work, church, wherever it may be, they come because of the selfish desires of your hearts and mine. Or in verse 2, James says it even so strongly that you might be caught off guard, but he says, all of us desire something in our hearts, and when you don't get it, you murder. You know, James doesn't literally mean that we're going to kill every time our desires aren't met, but as Jesus pointed out in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, we murder not only by taking someone's physical life away, but murder also happens in our hearts when you and I envy, when we desire something, when when. We have hateful and angry thoughts in our minds and our hearts against someone who might have what you don't have. Maybe it's that picture-perfect family with the nicest home, nicest car, nicest vacations, and you want it because who doesn't? But maybe you're not able to go or do or have or enjoy everything that you desire. So what happens in your hearts? In your heart where your passions and desires are at war within you, you begin to breed contempt. And then envy and jealousy turns to hate. And that, according to Jesus and James in our passage, is the same and just as serious and grave as committing murder. Well, James goes on and he says, you covet, but you can't have it. So what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. Maybe it's approval or influence that you covet and you end up not getting that desired position at work or even here in church. What do you do? Maybe envy might lead you to put someone else down so that they can't have what you can't have. Or even better yet, you might even preemptively gossip about somebody so that you can protect your own position, reputation, honor, and name. And, you know, and the desire that James is focusing on here in our passage isn't the same desire that I have for a cold cup of Phil's coffee right now. It's that the desire that James is talking about is the same desire, the same selfish desire, same selfish ambitions that Pastor Andrew walked us through in chapter 3 last week. And these selfish desires that are at war in your heart every single moment, if left unchecked, 
if left unrestrained, uncontrolled, James is saying it's going to lead to murder in your mind, in your heart, but also visible fights and conflicts and quarrels, even right here in the church. And James continues at the end of verse 2, explaining the reason why they couldn't fulfill their selfish desires. Right? He says, you do not have, in verse 2, because you do not ask. In other words, you don't have because you don't pray. As Sam Alvary says in his commentary, he says, prayerlessness is a sign that someone is trying to run things in their own strength, for their own sake, under their own authority. Or prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God, so that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting the Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children, we ourselves decide what is good and seek to gain it through our own efforts. In other words, maybe, friends, just maybe, the reason why you keep getting ending up in conflicts in your life, whether big or small, maybe the reason why you keep wanting more and better things and circumstances, and when you don't get them, you act out in anger, hatred, jealousy, envy, even judgment, is maybe because you're not taking up your tangled up messed up, raging desires of your heart to the Father who knows you best. But some of you might say, wait, Paul, I do pray. Right? I do pray for a better marriage, better circumstance, better life, but he hasn't answered my prayers. And if that's you, because it's definitely me, James is gently rebuking us this morning that you and I have totally missed the mark of what prayer is all about. You see, James says in verse 3, the reason why you pray for your wants and your needs and your dreams and your goals is, and you still don't have your expectations met is because you ask wrongly, right? He says to spend it on your passions, literally in the Greek, on your pleasures. And if I were to ask you, friends, if you were to record all the prayers this week, this month, this year, and you made a little T-chart, and on the left side you put all the things you prayed about your wants, your needs, your desires, your hopes, your goals, your dreams, everything on the left side. And on the right side, I asked you to put all the things you prayed about, God's desire, God's will, God's kingdom. How will your prayer chart look like? And just to be clear, it's not wrong to pray for your needs and your wants, all of that. It's good. But as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, right, we first and foremost pray for God's will to be done, for his kingdom come and reign in our hearts, for his desire to be what we desire. And then we pray for our daily bread, and then our forgiveness of sins, and our neighbors, and church, and so much more. But if you honestly looked at your prayer life, do you pray to get God to do what you want to do? Or do you pray that he will change you to do what he wants? Or do you pray simply to establish your own little kingdoms here on earth, or do you pray that his kingdom come? and his will be done here on earth. Or as one pastor put it, do you pray to God simply as your server to deliver all of your daydreams and touch base with him once a week on a Sunday, put in your order through a quick one-minute prayer, and then maybe if you're feeling generous, you'll go to the offering box and offer tithes and offering. And if he doesn't come through, answer your desires, answer your prayers. Do you leave your table angry, disappointed, fuming, and frustrated yet again. You know, before going to our next point, you might think, okay, Paul, I, I hear you. I'll try better. 
I'm going to try to control some of my selfish desires. I'm going to even try to pray the Lord's Prayer this week. I'll split up 50% my desire and 50% God's desires. But sadly, in this broken reality that we live in, it's not going to end your fights, your conflicts, the quarrels of your life. Because there's a deeper problem within your heart and mind that we sometimes are so blinded to. It leads us to our next point, problem number two, our friendship with the world. You know, deeper than our horizontal conflicts that we have with one another here from our uncontrolled, selfish desires is our vertical conflict that we have with God. And this conflict we have with God is much more serious than the conflicts you have with people around you. And that's why James doesn't cut any corners. When he gets straight to the point in verse 4, how, what does he say? He says, you, adulterous people. You know, all throughout his letter, if you've been following along, he's been addressing his readers as my brothers, my dear brothers. Even when he was saying, stop your sins of partiality. Stop your faith without work. Stop your, your failure to tame your tongue. He's been saying, my brothers, stop. But here in our passage, James doesn't hold back and he calls you and me what we are. You, adulterous people. In other words, James is saying that by seeking friendship with the world, you and I are committing spiritual adultery against God. And just to be clear, James isn't saying that you can't have friendship with the people in the world because we ought to. We ought to love and show grace and forgive and share the gospel of Jesus to the people in this world, but it's the friendship with the values of this world that glories in self-centeredness, that applauds self-success, that is wrong and makes you and me unfaithful to God. Because isn't it true sometimes when people outside the church look at us, even here at New Life, they see so much hypocrisy, conflicts, divisions, and drama in the church. The church, where it's supposed to be all about love, all about forgiveness, generosity, sharing, and grace, and mercy looks no different than the rest of the world full of selfish ambitions, selfish desires, corruption, envy, jealousy, and conflicts. You see, when your heart is ultimately controlled by your self-serving, self-centered desires, and you act out accordingly, causing conflicts, murder in your hearts, ending and judging others in bitterness, James is saying that you are essentially climbing back into bed with the world, committing yet again another spiritual adultery. And friends, you might not know this or know how serious that is, or you're here and you're not even faced by that. But God takes it personally. Right? He takes it seriously. Look at verse 5 with me. James says, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You see, when you and I flirt with the world and its values, God becomes jealous for his people. And this divine jealousy isn't some high school crush jealousy. You can't even compare to the anger you might have when you find or if you find your spouse being unfaithful to you because this divine Jealousy that God has, it provokes the holy wrath and righteous anger of God because God demands only total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance and faithfulness to him. In other words, you and I cannot be friends with both God and the world. 
You cannot say that you are serving God and serve money at the same time. You cannot say that you are denying yourself to pick up the cross and follow Jesus, but at the same time, you're chasing after all the comforts, the convenience, and the glory of this world. You cannot say you are building up God's kingdom in your homes, in your workplace, in the mission field, and also build up your own little kingdoms here on earth. Brothers and sisters, it's a serious warning to people like myself who love God, but also the world. Because there is no middle ground. Because if you are outside the friendship with God, and this is a tough thing to say, but it is true, that the only thing that is waiting for you is God's consuming fire and eternal condemnation and separation from his love, grace, and mercy. That if you have enmity with God, as James says, or in other words, if you have made God your enemy, not only will the conflicts and the quarrels and the fights in your life continue and increase, but the deepest longings, the selfish desires that you have will always be wanting more. It'll always be left unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and you won't be able to desire and love nothing else but yourself. You're either friends with the world or friends with God, but you cannot be both. So if you look at the desires, the ambitions of your heart, friends, if you look at the way you pray or don't pray, if you look at the conflicts and the quarrels you might be in right now, are you friends with the world or with God? Brothers and sisters, God could have left us there in bed with the world. Where God could have released his righteous, holy anger and wrath and condemnation of his divine jealousy toward unfaithful, adulterous people like you and me who keep climbing back into bed to find comfort and love and joy in the world. But in his grace and in his love, God does not leave his people where they are. That leads us to our last and final point, the solution. The solution. So you might be wondering today after all of that, how then, Paul, can I stop quarrels and fights in my life with my spouse, with my children, with my in-laws, with my friends and coworkers? Or how can I then win the war of passions that are raging in my heart? Or how can I go from this uncontrollable, selfish desire to desiring things of God? How can I go from making God my genie in a bottle to my Father in heaven? What's the solution? What's the cure? Solution, friends, is in the rest of the passage in verses 6 through 10. Well, what James is teaching us as the ultimate solution to your inordinate, unrestrained, selfish desires that cause so much conflict and disharmony in your life, the solution is this, to submit yourself to God. And you might say, I already do submit myself to God. I'm here. I brought my family here. I serve. I give my tithes and offering. And friends, I'm glad you are here and worshiping with us, both live stream and in person. I'm glad you are serving in the church and thank you for your generosity. But at the same time, are you really submitting yourself to God or to yourself? Because submission to God cannot come apart from humility. And as James says in verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But grace is only given to the humble. God's grace is only given to those who realize they messed up. Right? Grace is only given to those who in humility, like the tax collector, who has 
nothing to show except their sins and their mess and their failure, unlike the Pharisee who lists out everything that they have done to serve and submit to God in pride. And in our pride, we complain, we envy, we judge others, we get angry because our godless, selfish desires aren't being met the way you want them to. But friends, if you have truly experienced God's grace, you cannot help but be humble. Because grace is for helpless, unworthy sinners. Grace tells you that you didn't deserve even an ounce of God's love, but he gave it anyways because he loves and desires you. So this humility in response to the grace you and I received in Jesus who humbled himself to be born in a manger, who submitted his entire desires, his will, even his life to die on the cross for your sins and mine, only that can and will lead you to your full, willing, joyful submission to God. As Sam Albury says once again in his commentary, he says this, so the answer, the solution is found in submitting our desires to him, giving them over to him, and even asking him not to give us the things we deeply want when the things we deeply want are selfish. I know this is hard to do, friends, to submit all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your desires to God, to even ask him not to give you certain things because you know it might fuel your selfish desires. But it's even harder because there's no one else that hates you submitting to God more than the devil himself. And that's why James writes in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I'm short and concise, but this is what it means. The devil can make your life more difficult and challenging by taking away your health, your wealth, your success, your glory, sure. But at the same time, the devil knows more than anyone that especially for people living in sunny Southern California here, it's easier and better for him to give you more blessings, more wealth, more health and security to turn you away from God. Because when you are wrestling with whether you should indulge in your desires, he's going to come and whisper in your ears, you deserve it. Doesn't God want you to be happy? One time isn't going to hurt. Or if you finally decide and you're, gonna, you're saying, I'm going to pray to God and submit my desires to him, and he's going to come and whisper in your ears, you don't need to do that today. It's no biggie. Once isn't going to hurt. You see, more than anything else, the devil, the enemy, wants you to betray your faithfulness to God by making the things of this world so much more beautiful and desirable than the things of God. But James reminds us in verse 7 that nothing is better at resisting the devil in his schemes and whispers of lies than your joyful, willing, humble submission to God. And the guaranteed result is not that he might leave you alone but that the devil will flee, run away from you. But what if you're here today, you're on the other side of the path and the journey of your faith, and you've already been indulging in your selfish desires little by little, month by month, year by year. And today you are sitting here thinking, there is no way that God can love me after all the times I failed to resist my temptations, after all the times I just did what I wanted to do. Well, friends, verse 8 is for you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
See, James isn't talking about salvation because in salvation, God initiates. God draws near first. Instead, what James is saying is that no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how much you've already been friends with the world, no matter how much you've already given in to the selfish desires of your heart, if and when you turn from your sins and you draw near to God, the gospel promise for you in Jesus Christ is that he will draw near to you in full restoration, full mercy, full forgiveness. It's just like the father who ran to his prodigal son. Before the son could even come up with an apology, God draws near to you in mercy, love, and restoration. So what does this look like practically speaking? What does this look like in your jealousy, your conflicts on your Mondays at work, your Wednesdays at home, your Sundays even here at church? What does it all look like practically? One word is repentance. Notice how in verse 8 he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's the repentance of your hands and your hearts. It's both your attitude and your, your mindset. It's both your behavior and what's inside. Right? It's not just sorry for fighting with my spouse. It's, God, I'm sorry for putting my selfish expectations on them so that they can fulfill what I need. Or it's not even just, God, I'm sorry for gossiping about another member here at church, but it's, God, I'm sorry for letting my selfish ambitions get in the way of loving my brother and sister in Christ. And sometimes, friends, our repentance may need to look like verse 9. James says, be wretched, or in other words, grieve, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. All of a sudden, James is being more depressing, isn't he? James isn't saying you can't have joy. Because if you remember in chapter 1 of James, he says, consider your suffering, your trials, persecution as joy. So we ought to have joy. But the laughter and joy that James talks about in verse 9 is the fleeting, fake, superficial, temporary joy that comes when you indulge and give in to your selfish, inordinate desires. And ultimately, what James is teaching us is that true, genuine repentance, when you know the seriousness of your sins, may look like grief, weeping, and mourning even. So sisters and brothers in your life, when was the last time you really grieved over your sins? Are you more moved to tears when your favorite sports team wins a championship or the World Series? Or when you watch sad movies? Or even simply from disappointments and frustrations of your life than your sins? And if you're like me and you can't remember the last time you really mauled over your sins, maybe you don't see the seriousness of your sins. Maybe you don't really know what it truly cost Jesus to rescue you from it. Maybe sin and grace has become so cheap in your eyes. Maybe the cross is just the forgiveness dispenser. When you go and you messed up to cleanse yourself, when you feel dirty and guilty, you just go to the cross and say, God, get this off of me. And if that is you, James again tells us in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourself by remembering how low you have fallen short of the glory of God. Humble yourself by realizing how selfish and self-centered you actually might be because the lower you see yourself, as verse 10 says, the more you will be lifted. 
the, more, the worse you see your sins as, the more you'll be able to see God's grace in the person who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for your sins and mine, and it is only by this grace in the person of Jesus where you can even begin to desire the things of God, his plan, his word, his will, so much more than your own desires for the things and values of this world. The solution, friends, to your selfish, conflict-causing desires is not stop desiring. That's not the answer. The answer is desire Christ. Make him more desirable. Make him more beautiful than anything that the world has to offer you. And as a song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So as we come to a close, remember, friends, God's grace not only forgives, but it transforms. It does not leave you as you are. But you might say, Paul, I'm like the prodigal son. I've literally spent all that I have. I've seen, I've tasted, and I have experienced all the pleasures of this world, and I don't know if God will take me in. But that is you. Verse 6 is for you. But he gives more grace. I'm not really sure if I can resist the devil and his cunning schemes and lies that he whispers in my heart, but he gives more grace. You might say, I'm really not sure if I can control the selfish desires of my heart. I keep coveting, I keep envying, I keep having hateful thoughts of jealousy and judgmental thoughts in my heart. Even people in this church, what do I do? But he gives more grace. And if you're like me, you might say, You might say, I have such a hard time. Just seeing how bad and sinful I actually am and submitting all my desires, it's so hard. If that's you, verse 6 is for you and for me. But it gives more, more grace. So dear New Life Press family, no matter where you are in the fight for your heart, with all the desires of the things and values of this world, because of Jesus, God's grace cannot and will not run out on you. So even if it's three times a day or 20 times a day, God is never tired of your humble repentance, your godly grief over your sins. So submit your desires. Repent. Turn to him, knowing that he's going to extend his redeeming, restoring grace to you. Humble yourself in your sins, in your middle of your envy, in the middle of your conflicts, in your friendship with the world, knowing that you are so sinful. But in Jesus Christ, there is so much more grace than you can ever imagine. And he sees you as righteous, blameless, pure, and so precious.
the promise is, if you pull up verse 10 one more time, it's not that God might exalt you when you have your things together. It's not that God might exalt you when you stop desiring the things of this world, but he's saying he will. He will exalt you. Not in this life, by giving you everything you've ever desired, but in the eternal, everlasting life, because he has already given you everything that you ever need in this life and the next. And his name is Jesus, who went to the cross to call you, my friend. It's Jesus Christ who took upon himself God's wrath, anger, and punishment of hell for your spiritual adultery so that he can call you my bride. It's Jesus Christ who was exalted on high so that you and I might be raised with him in glory forever. It's Jesus Christ who gives you so much, so much grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your son who does not turn us away in our friendship with the world. We thank you for your son who pours out so much more grace. We thank you for your son who calls us his most perfect, holy, and beautiful bride. Even in our unfaithfulness, even in our selfish desires, even in our failure to acknowledge and submit under you, Father, you show us so much grace. So to to my brothers and sisters out here in New Life Press, I pray that, Lord, you would remind them of this truth, that there is no limit to your love for them, that there is nothing that they can do for you to stop drawing near to them, for you to stop pouring out your love on them. So in this truth, would you give us the strength and the power to submit to you, to say no to the, the evil schemes of the enemy, and to even say no to our desires because we desire you so much more than the things of this world empower us by your spirit. Help us to fall in love with you more and more. In Christ's name we pray.